Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Woman in Compliance podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary and I'm pleased to introduce today's guest, Alan Smith. Alan was recommended for the show by a great gentleman in compliance. So a big hello and thank you to Matt for nominating Alan, his favorite great woman in compliance. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Nan. Thank you to Matt, too, for meeting us. This is, ex- this is really exciting. Do you tell us about yourself? Yeah, thanks. Ellen Smith, and I've been doing international trade in some form or fashion for my whole career since I left university back way back when in the late 80s. My first job was with a, with a freight forwarder and was doing freight forwarding, ocean exports, not knowing what that meant, but I wanted a <laughs> job with an international company. So that's what I did. And while I was there, I started law school at night. So I went to law school, took, took the evening program and graduated after five years. And then went into, did a slight diversion from international trade and was a plaintiff's lawyer in a medical malpractice and personal injury firm for several years as a trial lawyer, but then got back to my love of trade and went to joined a, a firm in private practice doing international trade again for a couple of years before I went in-house. My first in-house job as a compliance lawyer was with Jockey International, the underwear company. And then I, in 20. 10, moved to Houston. My husband was from Texas and he got me here as quick as he could. He said, (laughs) here we are in Texas now and joined an oil and gas company and helped to build their trade compliance program. That was Weatherford International. And then I moved to Baker Hughes as vice president of trade compliance until two years ago. And then two years ago, I decided it'd be a good time to quit my job in the middle of the (laughs) pandemic and went through a little bit of a midlife crisis. My youngest daughter (laughs) was heading off to school and to college. So we were going to be empty nesters and I lost my dog and I felt like my world was falling apart. (laughs) I I quit my job and decided to actually, before I quit my job, I reached out to several friends and said, I'm thinking about leaving, thinking about if you hear of any new jobs mm-hmm. my way. And three of those friends said, well, if you go out on your own, we'll hire you. And mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, well, why not? Let's give this a try. Ready for a change in life. And so just jumped off the cliff and started a consulting company. And I started Amali Trade Compliance Consulting. Mm-hmm. Molly comes from my two daughters, Amanda and Natalie, the first three and the last three of their names. No big secret about where the name comes from, but it's related to them. And here we are two years later, and I now have 12 employees. Wow. And we've grown a lot. And we just, I've got a group of consultants that were all former in-house people. So we know what what our clients want. We think and relate to them. And it's been really successful. And I just keep pinching myself every time. (laughs) It's an awesome story. I'm sorry to hear about the loss of the dog and the process that must have been a difficult part of it the positives of course it sounds like it's been very successful and so I want to jump down actually to one of the questions 
that I had prepared for you for a little later, but this is a really good segue, I think. So you shared that it, it almost felt like a bit of a midlife crisis situation. And of course, the pandemic caused a lot of us to reflect very heavily on what our priorities in life were and were we getting what we needed from the lives that we were living was the status quo, what we were happy with once we asked ourselves that question. So I'd love to hear from you. What was the thought process that you journeyed through to decide that you wanted that you wanted to go out into your own space? It sounded like you had a guarantee of three clients right off the bat, but what, when you were facing that turmoil moment of being in the pandemic and having a whole lot happening around you, what led you to landing where you were now? Yeah, I'll tell you, when when I joined Weatherford back in 2010, I was there for almost four years. We had jumped in to build a trade compliance program at Weatherford. There were a bunch of us trade compliance professionals that joined all at the same time to, to help Weatherford get out of, mm. out of the investigation that they were under. And during that time period, we say it felt like dog years because we were just working mm-hmm. 24-7 a whole lot. But we, I came out with some tremendous friends and colleagues, and we had always talked about there's when as we were trying to build a program quickly, we were looking for external support to say, can you come in and help us on these things? And we just couldn't find that right talent mm-hmm. in one space. So we had to pull in people from different areas and create our own external network of support. Mm -hmm. And we talked about, could we do this someday in the future when we're all ready? Could we go out and start a consulting company that could provide that type of support? And we'd always been chatting about it, me and some friends, and I was the one that took the leap. That's what led me here. I felt like it was just the right time in my life. You were spot on about the pandemic and and really reevaluating where you are. I also had a health issue in 2019 that reset my thinking on what my priorities were. But I just, I really wanted to give it a shot. And when I had coming out of the gate, I had three retainers in place. It's like this kind of comfortable to to try this right now. So I feel lucky. Again, I keep pinching myself, but I'll tell you, it was, it's my network that I didn't even know I was building throughout the Mm. year that really has continued to drive the success of this business. That's hopefully that answered the question, but yeah, totally. This all came about. I think that's a really good point about the relationship building and We often think about this when it comes to if you need to look for a new job, ideally you want to have built your network before you need it. But as well, if you're eventually going to have your own book of business, you can't just expect for that to happen immediately and you're really leveraging off pre-existing relationships as your first clients before you have a track record. So I, I think this is something that a lot of people seem to not figure out and I get a lot of a lot of people reaching out to me as the first point of contact ever and they're basically asking for a favor because they're they've lost their job and can I help them in any way and of course I want to be able to do that that's why Lisa and I published a book called sending the elevator back down but there's a whole lot less you can do for people when you don't know them and if you're not leveraging off an existing relationship it 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 frankly does make it harder. I think you raise a good point that when it comes to going out on your own, having pre-established networks really puts you on the front foot. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And that's what I've learned the most throughout mm-hmm. the, whole pro- the last two years is that has become my valued asset. I think yeah. network. I just, and I, frankly, I didn't even really realize I was developing a network over the last, I didn't do it intentionally. And if mm-hmm. I think if I had maybe thought about it more, maybe I, I don't know where I'd be right now. I, everybody that I talk to now, I say, you got to work on that network and use LinkedIn. That's an awesome, oppor- awesome mm-hmm. opportunities there, but just be nice to people and go mm-hmm. out and, meet and don't be afraid to talk to people. Everybody, I love talking about trade. So anybody that wants to come up to me on the street mm-hmm. or at a conference or anything, I'll talk all day. I, that's what I try to encourage people about. And it sounds like you're you're in agreement there too I just I think it really is important to to just intentionally build that network and I lucked out by not doing not knowing I was doing it but did it anyway (laughs) nice nice at least I think it would have been very authentic if that's the case so turning substantively now to issues the frenzy that we observed in 2022 with sanctions pertaining to the war in Ukraine appears to have leveled out a bit What's the state of the world of sanctions currently? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I just read an article this morning about will sanctions, is the end of sanctions coming about? And and it was interesting because they were talking about how countries are now protecting themselves against the sanctions that the U.S., because the U.S. has been sanctions happy for a a Mm -hmm. while. and. Countries are starting to think about how do we harden ourselves from that? If we get removed from SWIFT, if we if we can't deal in U.S. currency, what do we do? How do we keep our economies going? So I think it, it was an interesting article. I don't know if we're close to there yet, in my opinion. But I will say this, that where we are with sanctions is just seeing governments use everything in their toolbox to, to put the sanctions in place. So it's not just the traditional economic sanctions. We now have export control measures that that are essentially sanctions against countries. And we have the multilateral sanctions, which, you know, since 2014 and Russia's first invasion of Ukraine, we just this multilateral effort that that becomes really difficult for for companies to navigate. And it's not that there's it, it was a lot easier in the old days when we just said, can't do business in Iran or if you're a U.S. Yeah, person yeah. or full sanctions on, on a country. That's not what we have with Russia. It's not what we have with Venezuela. So we have to navigate that. And if companies can still legally do business there and or do business for humanitarian is, or issues, or then that's what companies like mine can help with. And that that's where we are today. It's just a really complex world. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So as we turn our minds to the future of trade governance programs, and you're opining that it's probably not the end of trade sanctions, people have not become or other jurisdictions have not become sufficiently independent to completely avoid them and deal without them. What should we be keeping in mind for our trade governance programs in 2023? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I think it was in April of this year that Lisa Monica from the Department of Justice said sanctions is the new FCPA, right? I think we, we're going to see the DOJ start to enforce sanctions and export control measures, I think, even more than they are today. It's going to be a focus. So what does that mean for companies? It means just what you said. You have to have a program in place. And I think compliance professionals by now should know what the elements of a, of a 
program are. The elements of a program, whether it's for anti-bribery and corruption or export compliance or sanctions compliance, the mm-hmm. elements of a program are the same. You have your policies and procedures, you need to have your training, mm-hmm. you need to have your auditing, you need to have your risk assessments, and you need to have systems. Mm-hmm. And if you have those elements of a program and can opine, can articulate what the, that program looks like, then you're on your way. The hard part is operationalizing that. And that's a word I think that gets thrown around a lot, but yes. it really <laughs> is. I think that's what I believe that where the rubber meets the road to a program, you can have the best program in the world, but if it's not built into your day-to-day business, you're not going to see the same results or the results that a company that the government wants to have. That's a good point. And I think a lot of the time we get scared or nervous about jumping into new areas of subject matter expertise, but a lot of the core components or the foundational aspects of a program are the same. Antitrust, data privacy, it's going to be largely the same elements just tailored around the specific subject matter. So don't get caught up in the fact that you may not be as knowledgeable at trade sanctions as you may be about FCPA, for example. Obviously, it's necessary to look into the subject matter and learn about it if that is your area. But when it comes to implementing a program, you already know the basic elements and largely the standards and expectations required. So so I'd like to ask you about boycotts, and I think they're probably a lesser known area for generalist compliance practitioners. Tell us what they're about in relation to sanctions, please. Sure. And if I could start with this, I always, and I didn't do it this time, and I probably should have, but I always (laughs) start meetings just defining what trade compliance is. Yes, go for it. Let's do that. And that is, yeah, because I find that in different companies, trade compliance can mean different things. Mm. To me, it includes import compliance, so customs issues, because every export turns into an import somewhere down the road. Export controls, export compliance is the second sort of pillar. Sanctions is the third. And then we've got anti-boycott. Anti-boycott could typically, or boycott issues could could be a subset of sanctions, but because of the interesting rules we have in the United States when it comes to anti-boycott issues, we always list it out as a separate pillar. Those are sort of for, I try and have an elevator speech about trade. what is trade compliance, and that's it. <clears throat> compliance, export control, sanctions, and boycott. There's a whole lot that goes into the four of those, but, but I don't get as many questions about and a boycott as I would like, because I think it is when we bring that up with clients, some of them just their eyes glaze over and think really don't know what you're talking about here. And <laughs> could that really impact us? And in some cases it can. And I, and I boycott laws in the United States are complex and crazy. We have both the Department of Commerce and the Department of Treasury that have issues or that have regulations around around anti-boycott rules. The Department of Treasury says taxpayers in some cases are required to report on operations and even certain contractual clauses. They have to report that in their annual tax returns. And then the Department of Commerce says quarterly companies that do business with certain jurisdictions have to report as well. So there's these reporting requirements that a lot of companies are not aware of. The, on the Department of Commerce side, the anti-boycott regulations are a subset of the EAR, and they prohibit U.S. persons from participating in 
or even agreeing to participate in a boycott that would be inconsistent with U.S. government policy. The most common one is the Arab League boycott on Israel. There's certain contractual clauses or indications that like if you see something in a letter of credit or a certificate of origin or a bill of law, there might be a reporting requirement or there might be an obligation to change that language the, by the U.S. company. So you have to, there's a lot of nuances to the anti-boycott rules, but at the end of the day, you know, what we see is that there, there are reporting requirements to the government for these rules, and they're pretty complex. Wonderful. I'm going to award myself a little host gold star for asking you about boycotts, given that it's not an area you often get asked about. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, when I was at Baker Hughes, Baker Hughes for at one point had the, uh, the dubious honor of having one of the highest violations or settlements on it. <laughs> if that happened before I joined the company, but we did have a good boycott program as a result, and they continue to have a great boycott program at Baker Hughes. But, but the uh, Matt Silverman, who kindly introduced me to you, was really involved in our boycott program, so he's got a great knowledge of it. I have other folks, Lindsay Wardlaw, who's currently on my team, and we just we think we got a really good handle on this stuff and. That's why we like to talk about it. <laughs> good. Someone needs to yeah. be the expert. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And then trade sanctions is an area that is really quite specialized. What, what made you decide to focus your practice area specifically on trade sanctions? It sounds like you have a bit of a love of it and you came back to it very happily after doing some other things. What is it that sparks your love of trade sanctions? So it's actually a little bit different than that. I started in ocean exports back in, like I said, mm -hmm. 80s. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just putting together, it's like a freight forwarder does to, sh to ship, in some cases, string beans to Singapore for one of my mm -hmm. clients. In any case, I, I when I went to, after law school, when I joined Jockey, I was really focused on customs compliance and import compliance. And I was there for a little longer than seven years, but Jockey was not, there's no export controls in underwear. It was really heavily focused on import compliance. And that's what got me to Houston and to help build Weatherford's trade program. Import compliance was an element of that. They, mm. The trade program, which at the time was run by Natalia Shahada, had some export control and sanctions experts. Natalia was one. And I was balancing that out with my customs expertise. But of course, being in the trade group and being counsel to the trade group had to quickly learn sanctions and export controls. And I loved it. I love the international nature of it. Being in oil and gas, we, of course, are we're working in some of the, the most difficult jurisdictions around the world mm -hmm. where hydrocarbons are. And that you just had to know that stuff. I really got into sanctions in 2014 when Russia invaded Ukraine and the awful circumstances around Crimea and being in oil and gas that that was was really difficult time to figure out and help the company. But that was the biggest dive into sanctions. And now most of my personal consulting practice, what I work with companies on is their sanctions program. But like I said, my, my whole team, we've spread out between those four areas that I talked about. Cool. And now reflecting on the last couple of years where you've been hanging your own shingle, what was a pleasant surprise when starting up your own business? Yeah, I think going back to my network, like I just, because I really mm. didn't know how much 
I had spread the Ellen Smith way <laughs> out there. And there were a lot of people that knew me or wanted to get to know me. And that was great. Was, again, the biggest surprise that I could actually do this. I think the other one is that I could actually run a business. I'm a lawyer. I don't know how to do that. But it's been really fun figuring out all these different things. I'd never been a consultant before. Of course, I, I was I was a plaintiff's lawyer. We build on contingencies, but I was in private practice for a while where I had to bill as a lawyer. And I always said, I always said I would never go back and do that where I had to bill because it's so onerous. But here I am doing it again. But there's a whole lot better systems in place than when I was doing it. But it's it's been wonderful to understand, again, a great surprise that I've had clients reach out to me and say, we want to work with you. But also these 12 crazy people that agreed to work with me on my team and, and felt like they were willing to take the leap on this very young company and join in and try and do this with me. Again, it's just been, it just warms my heart every day that I have all these great people around me. So the network and Pleasant Surprise and that apparently I know how to run a business too. Awesome. Well done. I wish you every continued success and thank you so much for taking the time to share your expertise with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'm so glad to be invited and that Matt introduced us. So again, thank you. Same here. And dear listener, to wrap up our episode today, I want to share with you a general rule about building your network before you need it that I, I try to use, which is ideally when you're making your first contact with someone, you want to avoid it being an ask. So lay the foundation, get to know people, deposit some credits, send the elevator back down to others proactively first so that you have something to leverage off when it's time for you to ask a favor. And I do know that there are times when sometimes it is unavoidable. And so when I'm in the situation where I reach out to someone with an ask and it's the very first contact that I make. I'm really straight up and upfront about that fact and say I'm conscious of the fact that it's typically not ideal to be reaching out to someone with an ask as the very first outreach. And so I just wanted to sincerely let you know that if there's anything that I can do for you, please don't hesitate to reach out so that hopefully that they feel like it is perhaps it's a one-way street right now, but that you really mean it when you are offering a two-way street relationship for the future. That's all we have time for today. On behalf of Lisa and myself, thank you so much for joining us. We are grateful to have you on board as per usual and wish you a very pleasant rest of your day. Take good care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review. 